You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that we can have that confidence, that we can have the the blessing of being able to look at your word and understand it. We do ask, God, that you would give us the grace to do that very thing, that as we recognize you this morning, as we bow our hearts before you, that you would illuminate our eyes, our minds, and our understandings, and bless us, O God, with a right understanding of your word. Help us to make sense out of what you have revealed and to apply that to our lives. Thank you for your grace that is able to make this possible, and we pray your blessing and your presence here for the sake of your glory and your namesake. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Philippians chapter 3, looking at that, and after the sermon last week, somebody came up to me and offered me some correction, which I stand before you corrected because I made a statement last week that I need to correct. Somebody came up after the sermon and said, you said in your sermon that Paul never used a sewing or a knitting analogy of the Christian life. And I said, yeah, that's right, I said that. And she said, um, Colossians 2.2 says that you may be encouraged having been knit together in love. <laughs> so I went back to study Colossians chapter 2.2 to see if I was going to make a correction and have to correct my correction. And what I found out was that the word knit together actually means to unite or to unite together. It's our English word that uses that sewing analogy or, or knitting term. It's not Paul's term. But when she mentioned that to me, I did remember that there is a place where Paul does use a sewing analogy. And it kind of popped into my mind when she mentioned Colossians 2.2. 2. And it is 2 Timothy 2.15 where Paul says we are to study to show ourselves approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, this is the term, handling accurately the word of truth. And the word translated handling accurately is ortho from orthodox to male from cut, and it means to cut something straight. And it was used of a farmer who would cut a straight furrow. It was used of a craftsman who would cut along a straight line. And it was used by tent makers like Paul to refer to cutting straight a pattern. And the way Paul uses it in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is it suggests that if you do not cut straight, that is cut accurately the word of truth, then when you get to start to put together all of the pieces, they won't fit. And Paul understood that as a tent maker. When you get a piece of pa- a, a patch of cloth out and you put your pattern over it, if you don't cut out the pattern for the tent right and you don't bother to cut it straight, then when you get to ready to sew all of the pieces together, it's not going to go together right. You're not going to be able to sew it together right. So he says you need to handle accurately the word of truth. And it is a, a sewing analogy. And what it really indicates is that in theology and in Bible study, you have to handle accurately all of the parts of Scripture. Otherwise, when you go to put the whole thing together, you're not going to be able to make sense out of it. You ever met somebody who has a dog's breakfast for a theology? They made such a hash out of their individual Bible study that they believe this about one thing and this about another thing, and then they try and put it all together. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't go together at all. That's what Paul was warning about. So he did use a sewing analogy, and I stand corrected. But did I mention that he used a sporting analogy? In Philippians chapter 3, and I'm all done talking about sewing for the day. 
Philippians chapter 3, he uses a sporting analogy or a sports analogy, and he uses one of his favorites, that of running a race. The Apostle Paul liked this analogy. He likens his Christian life and his own ministry to running a race and finishing the race and running the course. He used that to describe the Christian life. And I think that oftentimes a lot of our uh, problems with our Christian walk could be corrected if we would only think more in terms of us running a race. If we were just to think of our day-to-day walk in terms of running a race and how that applies, we might correct a lot of our apathy and a lot of our um, bad steps and mistakes that we make in living the Christian life. The Apostle Paul, as we've been looking at this analogy, he applies it primarily three different ways. We've looked at the mindset of the runner, the manner of our running, and today we're looking at the mark after which we run. So we looked at the mindset of the runner. And it's very similar in athletics and in the Christian life. Paul says, I do not consider myself to have obtained it or seized it yet. That is referring to perfection and all of it comes to him in Christ. Paul says, I haven't been made perfect. I haven't seized or obtained everything that is to be mine. In other words, he didn't consider himself as already having passed the finish line. And that's important in the Christian life. It's also important in athletics. There's a term that we use, I'm sure it must apply to other sports as well, but in football we speak of looking past the opponent for that week. And what that means is that you got a sort of a weak opponent coming up that Sunday and you start thinking about the game that's next Sunday rather than the game that you're playing this weekend and you start to look past this weekend to the next big opponent and you don't really take into account the game that you should be playing. You look past it. And if you can do that when you're running a race, Paul says, I I wasn't looking past this. I don't consider myself to have crossed the line. There are teams and there are people in athletics and, and no, no athlete worth his salt would ever show up to an event with the attitude, I got this one wrapped up. All I got to do is show up, go through the motions. This victory is mine. It's as good as in the books. All I have to do is show up for the event and await the coronation. You know what they call people that do that? Presume upon a victory? The Patriots. (laughs) <laughs> now it's not often I get to preach on a sports theme so you got to give me a little bit of grace <laughs> I'm going to milk that this whole year until next Super Bowl you presume upon the victory you don't do that in athletics and you don't do that in your Christian life it's a disaster you can never reach a point in your Christian life where you say I've nailed it, I've attained it, I've got it Got it down. All I got to do is show up and the victory is mine. It's not that easy. You always have to be willing to run all the way till the day you die. That's the mindset of the runner. Then we looked at the, the manner that we run, and that is that singleness, the singularity of focus, the this one thing I do. I do not look back at the course that I have already run, but instead I fix my eyes ahead and I strain and reach forward toward a goal that was ahead of them. That's the manner of our running. The singleness of focus, that discipline, that looking forward and not pausing at the end of the track toward the end of your life and looking back at all that you've accomplished and saying, look what I've done, look what God has done through me. I can now take it easy. I can rest. I can relax. You can never do that on the track. So today we're going to look at the mark after which we run. The mark after which we run. And this is in verses 12 and in verse 14. We've noticed the parallel structure. Verse 12 makes the statement. Verse 13 and 14 sort of unpack the statement and unfold it and explain phrase by phrase what Paul says in verse 12. We find at the end of verse 12, Paul says, he presses on 
so that he may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now the same sentiment is expressed in different words in verse 14 when he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That which he wanted to lay hold of, for which Christ had laid hold of him, is that upward, that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's a parallelism. These are the same things described in two different ways. The, the mark toward which we run, we have to have a direction. As the great theologian in Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire Chat, Cat once said, Cheshire Chat, the Cheshire, Chess, the cat, the feline. As the feline in Alice in Wonderland once said, it does, if you don't know which way you want to go, it doesn't matter which way you go. If you don't know where you want to go, it doesn't matter which way you go. That's so simple, but so profound. It applies to the Christian life as well. Who wants to get to the end of their life and realize, I've been running on the wrong track? Who wants to get to the end of their life, having exerted all of the energy and all of the effort of doing what they thought was God's will, going where they thought God wanted them to go, doing what they thought God wanted to do, only to get to the end and realize, I have wasted all of my energies, all of my efforts, I have exerted myself only to find that I have been doing all of this and I've been running toward the wrong goal. So not only do we need to have a proper mindset in our running, and not only do we need to run in the right way, we need to know, after what am I to run? If I just said to you, run! You might run for a little bit, but after a while you'd stop and pause and say, where am I going, and what am I doing, and why am I running? We don't want to do that in our Christian lives. We want to have a mark toward which we run. So let's look at verse 12. The Apostle says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. There was something after which he was running. Do you know that the New Testament describes all of the things that you are to pursue? An interesting study sometime. Just, just look up in a concordance the word pursue and look at all of the things that the New Testament tells you that you are to be running after and pursuing. Let me give you a sampling of them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men. You are to pursue peace. 1 Peter 3.11 Turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Hebrews 2.14 says you are to pursue sanctification, that is holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says that no one, see that no one repays another for evil, for evil, but always seek after that which is good. Pursue that which is good. Pursue love. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. 1 Timothy 6.11 Speaking of the dangers of loving money, Paul says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now you say, Jim, you just give me like 50 things that I'm to pursue, and you were supposed to be telling me that I'm supposed to be a one, this one thing I do type person. So am I to pursue one thing or am I to pursue 20? Yes. It's actually both. You don't, this is the good news. You don't have to choose between pursuing holiness and pursuing Christ. You don't have to choose between pursuing righteousness and goodness and faith and love and sanctification and godliness and, or pursuing Christ. To pursue Christ is to pursue all of those other things. All of those other things, peace and holiness and love and sanctification and purity and goodness, all of those things are what it means to pursue Christ. What does it look like when you see somebody chasing after Christ? Well, you could say he's pursuing holiness, he's pursuing righteousness, 
He's pursuing godliness. He's chasing after faith and love and peace with all men and good things for those who are God's children and for those who are outside of the faith. That's what it looks like to pursue Christ. That's why Paul says, "You, I chase after Christ, but in chasing after Christ, I'm also pursuing all of these things. So we don't have to choose between pursuing righteousness and pursuing Christ. To pursue righteousness is to pursue Christ. Because when you get to the end of chasing righteousness, guess who you're going to find there? Christ. So you have to choose between the two. You can pursue both. And you're on one pursuit. Paul says, this one thing I do, I want to know Christ, I want to know Him better, and in doing that I pursue righteousness. How do I do that? Paul says, you are to press on so that you may lay hold of. Lambano is the word. It's used four times in this text. It's used three times here in this verse. Lambano means to seize or to grasp something. Sometimes it was used metaphorically as in an individual grasping something, understanding something. But most often it meant to, to lay hold of, to overtake, or to seize something. And there's sort of a word play in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul uses it three times. I do not regard myself as having seized it, but this one thing I do, I press on so that I may seize that for which I have been seized. And three times he uses the word in verse 12. And the idea is that of overtaking something. I do not view myself as having seized the prize or crossed the finish line yet, but I press on so that I may overtake or seize that for which I was seized by Christ. Now in the New Testament, it's used sometimes of a hostile takeover or overtaking something with hostile intentions. In Mark chapter 9, the word is used to describe somebody being seized by a demon. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's used of those who are in darkness who will be seized or overtaken by the day of the Lord. And Paul says you're not in darkness, you're not children of darkness, so you should not be overtaken or seized upon by the day of the Lord. And that's the sense in which it's used uh, here. It's used in the sense of, of simply grasping something or laying hold of something with your hands. Paul says I want to lay hold of or grab that thing for which I was grabbed. Now what is it that Paul wants to seize, to overtake, to grab a hold of. It is, and I'm going to spoil the ending for you, but we're going to get to this in verse 14. It is the end result of your salvation. That for which Christ has saved you is the thing that you are trying desperately to grasp and to seize. And the good news is that it's guaranteed you're going to seize it. But you're running after the very thing that Christ has promised that you are going to be able to seize. Now, for, for now, I want you to notice that the third time that it's used in verse 12, Lombano is in the passive tense. You notice that? Paul says, I want to seize that for which I was seized. By whom? By Christ Jesus. I was seized, I was laid hold of by Christ, Paul says. And now, because I have been laid hold of by Christ, I want to lay hold of that thing for which Christ has laid hold of me. And it's in the passive voice, Paul is the one who is being seized at the end of verse 12, and Christ is the one who is doing the seizing. Now what I love about that verse and how Paul phrases it is I think it's very interesting and very appropriate how Paul describes his salvation experience. Do you see that? Look at the words that he uses to describe salvation. You will never once hear the Apostle Paul saying, I was seeking for Christ and I was looking for answers and I wandered to this place and 
And then I had the truth presented to me and I made a rational, reasonable argument for this and for that and I evaluated the truth claims and then I made a decision and isn't Christ lucky to have me on His team? You never once hear Paul describe his salvation like that. You know how he describes it? While I was involved in the act of persecuting Christ, He appeared to me on the Damascus Road and He what? Seized Him. That's an appropriate description for what happens in Acts chapter 9, is it not? The Apostle Paul was not seeking after Christ. He was not involved in looking for Christ. He was actually involved in the very act of persecuting Christians and thus persecuting Christ. And Paul says, I was laid hold of by Christ. He seized me. That is an appropriate way of describing not only Apostle Paul's salvation, attendant as it was with all of the supernatural elements of it, the light and the blindness and the healing by Ananias and all of that, but it is also a very appropriate way of describing your salvation. You may have never thought of it in these terms, friends, but just as the Apostle Paul was laid hold of by Christ, so were you laid hold of by Christ. You were taken out of your sin and grabbed and seized by Christ for Christ's sake. You were seized by Him. See, no man seeks after God. Scripture teaches that God is the one who seeks after sinners. Jesus said, I didn't... Jesus did not say, I should say. Follow that? Jesus did not say, I have come to see, to save those who seek after me. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. It's Christ who seeks, not men who seek after God. Lost people are not blind in darkness, groping around in the darkness, trying desperately to find God before they die. Lost people are bound in darkness, groping around in darkness for more darkness, trying to walk away and flee from the light and the one true God. There's no man who seeks after God. If you are saved and you're sitting here and you've been saved, it is only because Jesus Christ reached in and grabbed you and plucked you out of your sin and turned you from your wicked ways and granted you repentance and gave you the faith to believe that would honor Him and drew you to Himself all to the praise of His glorious grace. You have been seized upon by Christ because you were dead in your sins and a slave to sin. That describes not just Paul's salvation, but the salvation of everyone who has ever believed on Christ has been seized by Christ. Now, understanding salvation in those terms goes a long ways toward clearing up any doubts about my security as a Christian. When I realize that God did not grab a hold of me only to carry me so far and then drop me or let me fall or let me jump out of His hands, but that He seized upon me for the sake of giving to me something that He has purposed to give to me even before time began. Now, can I be lost if I have been seized by Christ? Is it possible for Him to seize me for salvation and then for me to fall or slip or jump from His hand? I don't believe for a moment that He is, that it is. I believe that when Christ has seized an individual and that He has brought you to salvation, friends, if He has grabbed a hold of you and if He has laid hold of you, you are as secure as those who are already in heaven. He has seized upon you. What is the end for which He has seized me? He has laid hold of me for a reason. And Paul says, I am trying to lay hold of the very thing that He has laid hold of me for. What I want you to notice at the end of verse 12, and we're going to see this in verse 14 in in more detail. The aim of Christ in saving Paul was the same as the aim of Paul in living for Christ. Do you see that? Paul says, whatever it is that Christ has laid a hold of me for, That is the thing that I am running after. 
Now, here we get into this sort of mysterious, you asked me this question, but I'm not sure how it all goes together. And you say, well, if Christ has seized me and He's going to give this to me, why do I run after it? Because you run after it. That's what the Bible says. We are to pursue the very thing that He has laid hold of us for. Whatever it is that Christ has seized me for, that's what I run after. My Christian life is as simple as that. I need to find out what it is that He has saved me for and chase it. That's it. You want to know where to run? You want to know what you're running after? That's it, and it's that simple. You just ask yourself, to what end has He saved me? Then that is what I am to pursue with all of my effort. That end for which He has laid hold of me. Look at verse 14. The Apostle Paul describes the very same thing in different language. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm after a goal, he says. The word goal was a word that was used to describe a target that an archer would aim at. It is also, in Paul's sports analogy, it is also the finish line. It is that for which he is running, that for which he is reaching, that for which he is straining. It is that that he's chasing after. What is the goal? It is the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, a goal was used metaphorically in Paul's day to describe a mark or something that would direct your life or guard your life. It was used sort of symbolically of something that gave guidance to your life, a marker by which you lived your life. And it's inappropriate that Paul would use that term here, that analogy here. Friends, the goal that I am to pursue is the very thing that governs my life. So, anything in your life, even though it might be benign, even though it might be inherently good, even though Scripture may not address it, anything in your life, good or evil, that distracts you from the goal is an enemy of your soul. You understand that? Anything that distracts you from the goal of what you're pursuing is an enemy to your soul, even though it may not be evil in and of itself. There are plenty of good things that can take me off course and distract me from pursuing the one thing I should be pursuing. And it may not be an evil thing in itself, but if it distracts me from my goal, it has become sin for me, it has become evil for me, it has become an enemy to me. So Paul says, I am after a goal. Sometimes people ask me, do you think it's appropriate to serve the Lord in order to get the reward? In other words, is it appropriate to have the reward itself be my motivation? You ever wonder that? Should I be doing this for the reward that I get? Some people would say, No, I think that's a completely illegitimate motivation. No Christian should ever look forward to the reward that they expect to get as a motivation to serve Christ. I respectfully disagree with that position. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run, run in a race, and all run, but only one receives the prize? What? Run in such a way that you may receive the prize. It's legitimate to look forward and say, I am chasing after a prize. I'm going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness. I expect to wear the victor's wreath. Not a perishable wreath, but an imperishable wreath. And it is legitimate. It shouldn't be your only motivation, but it is a legitimate motivation to look forward to the goal and the reward and say, I'm going to sacrifice now because of what I get then. And I'm going to do something now because... Not just because I want the reward, but also because I want the reward. So we look forward to the reward. Now what is the prize? What is the prize? 
It is the prize of the upward call, and before we can know what the prize is, we have to understand what does Paul mean when he says upward call? What is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? I used to have, this is completely on an aside, just this popped into my mind, and it's not always wise to just say whatever pops into your mind, but I'll try and be measured. I used to have a, a Bible school um, roommate, my first year roommate at Bible college. He all, I don't think he even went to the shower without taking a camera with him. Everywhere he went, he had a camera with him. To lunch, to dinner, he woke with that camera, slept with his camera, everything. He was a photograph, photographic uh, nut. Sorry? Cat? Cat. He's a, photo, a photographing cat. Thank you. He was a photographing nut. Everywhere he went, he had his camera with him. And he was, I guess, the, uh, the photo, photographer for his high school. And he used to wear on, on a baseball cap that he had a little sign that said press right across the top of it. And in small print, you had to get real up close to see it. It said, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he sort of used that as an opportunity for to share this verse with people and to discuss this, the fact that he was pressing on and walking toward that this one thing he did. Every time I preach on this verse, I'm reminded of that little sign on my roommate's forehead. Every time I read it, I can just see press written across Doug's forehead. Not sure where I was going with that, but I wanted to share that with you. <laughs> what is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Well, some people have suggested a lot of different interpretations for what an upward call is. Some have suggested that the prize is the call itself. That the prize that we receive for running is that call of God where He calls us to Himself. I don't think that makes sense to the context. I think it puts the cart before the horse, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail as to why. Some have suggested, and I think there's maybe a little bit more legitimacy to this understanding, that the upward call that Paul has in mind is that call that we will receive in eternity when we hear the Lord call our name and award us the prize for a life well lived. The judgment seat of Christ or whatever it is, when we receive our rewards in eternity, and he likens it to, back in Paul's day, they had at the games in the Corinth and in the Olympian games, they had an emperor's box where the emperor would sit with all of his regalia and his padded seats and watch out over the games that were being played. And then when the victor was victorious and he won the game, the emperor would call his name and that victor would come up to the emperor's box to receive his prize or his award. And that was sometimes referred to as the call up. You get called up to the emperor's box. That might be what Paul has in mind. I can see some legitimacy to that. A third way of understanding it is that the call refers to that call home. When the Lord says, your number's up, your time is up, you're coming home to be with me, and you died, and he calls you heavenward. Some people have suggested that. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. What I do think the Apostle Paul has in mind, and like I said, I think there's legitimacy to the idea of the emperor's box analogy, but what I think Paul has in mind, and this is how the Apostle Paul uses the term call, is that it refers to that call of God that He calls us into His own kingdom and glory. It is that call of God where He effectually and effectively calls us to salvation. That is the call that I think the Apostle Paul is talking about. That's in keeping with how Paul uses klesis, the word for call, other places in the New Testament. For instance, let me give you a couple examples. First Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle says, We are to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Colossians 3.15 says we are called to peace. 
1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to Greeks and it's a stumbling block to Jews, but to us who are being called, to us who are the called, it is the power of God unto salvation. What makes the cross of Christ not foolishness to us and not a stumbling block to us? You know what the defining difference is? We are the called. To those who are the called, the preaching of the cross is the smell of life to life. It's not foolishness and it's not a stumbling block because we are called. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, We should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel. We are the called ones. So what is the call of God heavenward or the heavenly call? It is that effective, efficient call of God that you hear as His sheep when the shepherd utters your voice and your head bobs up and you look and you come to the Savior. That's the call that's being spoken of. That's in keeping with the way that Paul uses the term call all the way up through the New Testament. It is also in keeping with what he would mean in verse 12. When did Christ seize you or lay hold of you? When He called you. That's when He grabbed a hold of you. When He called you. There's parallelism between verse 12 and verse 14. The heavenward call of God is that call that comes from God to us. Its direction is heavenward because that is where it takes us. But it is that effective call of God, that call of God that brings you to salvation, brings you to repentance, and brought you to Christ. That's the call of God. So what is the prize? The prize is all that he's mentioned in this entire context that has to do with that that is given to us and rewarded to us in full. It is salvation. It is redemption. It is righteousness. It is sanctification. It is our glorification. It's everything we've looked at for the last six weeks. It is the prize. It is the reward. It is the finish line. It is all that is given to us at the moment of our death. All that we were promised in Christ from eternity past. Everything we've been chosen for. Everything we've been given. Everything that has been promised to us. The call goes out and it announces to us Come to Christ and taste and receive all of this. That call announces everything that we are to receive and it is everything that we are to receive that is given to us as the prize for running the race. And it is everything that we are called to receive which is itself is the prize. And that prize is announced by the call when the shepherd says, Osman, Jim, to me. And I come. That's the call. And the prize is everything that I get by faith in Christ. Does that make sense? That's the heavenward prize or the heavenward call that gives me the prize. Am I given that in Christ? I am. I'm promised that. It is mine by faith. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been granted and graced to me in Christ Jesus before time began, and that is the thing for which I run and I strive. So now we're back to what am I to run after? Well, you ask yourself, what have I been saved for? 
I've been saved for righteousness. So pursue righteousness. I have been saved to be holy. So you pursue holiness. I've been saved to be made righteous. So I pursue that righteousness. I've been saved for peace. Pursue peace. I have been saved for His glory. Then pursue glory. I've been saved for Christ's sake. So you pursue Christ. You just ask yourself, what is the end result of my salvation? That is what I chase. Whatever the end result of your salvation is, that is what you are to spend your whole life running after. Righteousness, holiness, purity, faith, Christ, and all that is summed up in it. That way Paul could say, this one thing I do. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, writing in 1669, I love how the Puritans write. Other than being just wordy and verbose, they do have a way of putting things that is eloquent and beautiful, and I'm choosing a selection to close with this morning. Thomas Brooks says, If a Christian could have his choice, he would be the most humble, the most holy, the most heavenly, the most mortified, the most patient, the most contented, the most thankful, the most fruitful, the most active, the most zealous, and the most self-denying Christian in the world. If I had my choice, that's what I would be. So Brooks says, If he could have his choice, he would be as holy as God is holy, as perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. He would do the will of God on earth as the angels do it now in heaven, namely freely, readily, cheerfully, delightfully, universally, reverentially, and unweariedly. If he could have his choice, he would exercise every grace and perform every duty with all his might. He sees so much excellency and beauty in God and Christ that he cannot be at rest until he is swallowed up in the enjoyment of them. He sees so much excellency in grace that nothing but perfection of grace will satisfy him. He makes perfection not only his utmost end, but he also labors after perfection with his utmost strength and endeavors. End quote. That's what Paul's saying. But Paul said it much more succinctly. This one thing I do, forgetting what I've already run, looking forward to the prize, I press on toward the goal for that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If holiness and perfection and righteousness is what you have been saved for, that is what you are to pursue with all of your efforts and all of your energies and all of your waking moments from this day forth and forevermore. Because you will seize the prize. And that is what Christ has seized you for, and that's what we are to run in hopes of seizing ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would direct our hearts in this grace, energize them to serve You. Lord, we know that there is within us this desire to be perfect. At the same time, we know that moral and spiritual perfection is not going to be ours anytime on this side of the veil of eternity. But we do know also that You have called us to pursue that and that You give us the grace to pursue it. And so we trust in You for that grace And Lord, may we progress in our sanctification and pursue that holiness without which we will not see you. We ask this in Jesus' sake, in his name, for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.